Hey, this is Emma Caitlin Berry, and on today's show, we chat with swim coach Jerry Rodriguez. Jerry is a swim coach with nearly four decades of experience in the sport. He started out in the early 80s when triathlon was just in its infancy. He's taken many pro triathletes and age groupers alike under his wing and enabled them to become better swimmers. Now, this was a live show with questions from our Facebook audience. Jerry got to talking about bilateral breathing, why your legs might sink when you're swimming, training intensity, and all sorts of nuances about swimming in the ocean, which uh, were very, very interesting. Be sure to check out Triathlete's social pages for news and announcements of our next live show. Okay, here's our conversation with Coach Jerry. Hello and welcome to Triathlete Live here in Boulder, Colorado. My name is Emma Kate Lidberry, your host and managing editor here at Triathlete Magazine. And today we are joined by Mr. Jerry Rodriguez. Jerry, how are you doing over there? I'm good. How are you? This is so <laughs> great to see you in this role and so professional. I mean, it's wonderful. <laughs> I try, yes. So uh, we uh, very, thank you very much for joining us today. We are very glad to have you on the show. And there's lots of people excited to ask you questions, especially as people uh, start getting back into their swimming. And uh, well, you know, most most pools have started to reopen, and obviously beaches are slowly starting to reopen. That kind of thing. So uh, yeah, lots of triathletes out there keen to ask you lots of questions. Uh, for those of you who don't know Jerry, he has uh, almost 40 years experience in the sport. <laughs> And uh, he has, he's the coach, head coach and founder over at Tower 26, the triathlon swim program based in LA, but you now have athletes worldwide, worldwide, right, Jerry? Yes, we do. And you're the uh, co-host of the Be Race Ready podcast with uh, listeners in over a hundred countries. And I guess we should also mention your new book, Triathlon Swimming. Or your new book. <laughs> yes, disclaimer, I am the co-author, but um, we will be giving away five copies of Jerry's book later in the show, so stay tuned for that. Uh, we had a lot of questions submitted via our social channels earlier in the week, and we also want to remind people at home that this is a live show. You can submit questions for the next hour, and this is a great forum, really, to uh, have open access to a coach who is obviously a terrific resource. So, yes, should we, should we start firing some questions at you, Jerry? Are you ready? I'm ready. How have you been, though? You're you're good. Yes, yes, very good. I'm uh, actually I've actually been following your your three week uh, return to swim training program, and uh, which we Should put on. Easy, right? We put that on triathlete.com. Was it the start of June when some of the pools started at reopening across the U.S.? And uh, yeah, I'm in week. F I'm actually yeah. I've graduated from the three week program. I'm on week four now, and uh, I've actually just entered a three mile swim race, which is happening in two weeks time. So we'll That's see how that goes from a, from a three week plan to a three mile race. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm not racing professionally anymore. So we, we can do that, that kind of jump. We just started this morning. Today was our first day, July. 1. Oh, wow. Five, five, or, you know, we have two facilities that we use and only one uh, reopen, which uh, this morning was our uh, debut morning. That's a big deal. Cause I know so everyone's on their first week of the first three weeks. So how, how did that go? How would, how, what was the general consensus? <laughs> Well, it's, everyone was so, one, I got a number of emails post-workout of, it, it felt so good to be, you'll have to have some sense of normalcy in your life, you know, showing up to a workout, something you haven't done and be coached live for, for several months now. So that was the wonderful piece, but it's just a little bit awkward. You go to the pool, you have to have a mask on and then you got to stay six feet apart and you have to put your gear down away from somebody else. And there's a little box that you can stand in. I mean, it's very, very formalized. But so you, 
So are you limited to how many people you can have in the pool or? So for lap swimming, it's certainly limited to one per lane and they have to reserve. For us, we have uh, greater numbers per lane, but we also have a reservation system to get into our workouts because we've got a very large group, as you know. So you have to uh, reserve uh, ahead of time to have access to the sessions. So today was just, you know, getting re-familiar with what it's like within a new system. How are we going to do this? What the that's going to be like, what does it feel like to not have your buddies at the wall with you? You have to, you know, be spread out across the, uh, across the pool and so on, mm -hmm. but we'll acclimate. It'll be good. Yeah. 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 Okay. So first question for you, uh, for those who don't have access to the pool for the foreseeable future, which I guess, you know, we can't assume that everybody does right now. What's the best out of pool regimen you can recommend? Well, if they don't have access to a pool, but let's make some assumptions, uh, I'll answer the question with the assumption there's no access to open water either. But if you have access to open water, of course, that's an opportunity you should take advantage of, providing it's safe. If they're, if, uh, if they're neither, I think one wonderful resource, um, and Emma Kate, I can't recall if you ever met Jack uh, that, that coaches with us, Jack Fabian, uh, on Jack's email so. address. I, I hope it's okay that for him that I give it out over the air here, but it's jack at tower26.com and it's that easy to do. And the reason I'm giving that out is Jack works directly with Vasa, Vasa trainer and oh, right. Rob, Rob, the owner. So utilizing a Vasa machine would be one wonderful thing. If you can do that, if you have access to a Vasa, if you want to purchase one, I think it's a terrific piece of equipment you should own if you uh, have the opportunity to. If you don't, then you can just, for 30 bucks, you can buy a pair of stretch cords or stretch bands, and they're simply, you know, rubber bands that have handles with them. And I prefer the ones with handles as opposed to no handle. And yeah. you would just bend over and you would do, you know, stationary swimming with the cords as resistance. And yeah. we have a video. I wish I had the link. I should have provided the link for you, but I, I can get that yeah, we can, show notes. We can, we can do that for yeah, yeah. post-show. So we have a um, we have a, a demonstration video on YouTube that you can look at. It shows you exactly how to do it, how to position yourself well, and so on. So stretch awesome. boards three, four times a week to start off. No more than uh, thirty repetitions at the beginning. Uh, take a break, do that three times, and then graduate over time. You can build up to a hundred repetitions, but make sure there's you know enough tension on the uh, on the cord. Yeah, and it's definitely very easy to, well, I guess like with anything, it's very easy to overdo those to start with. So it's definitely a case of building up like 30, starting out at 30 and, and building up gradually. And the thing is, if you start off even just with 30 and you do them correctly, uh, the next day you'll be sore. You will be sore in your shoulders and you'll be sore in your the lats. lats quite a bit. So yeah. doing 90, three sets of 30 is plenty adequate. Yes, for sure. And what about, so a lot of pools, I know in Boulder, for example, the pool I swim at, we only have, I think, uh, 50 minute, 55 minute slots per, you know, per session. And uh, one of the questions we had before the show was, I have 40 minute swim slots for the foreseeable future. What would you recommend for frequency, intensity, and technique? Because I guess there's, there's 40 minutes isn't the, the biggest of sessions. Uh, so I guess it's about using that time wisely, right? Right. And, and of course, it depends on where you are in your progression and what type of athlete are you. Is this a beginning person that's now learning how to swim? Is this someone that's moderately advanced? Is this an advanced athlete? Uh, what events are you doing? Right now, I guess there are no events. So let's make some assumptions since there are no races and you have 40 minutes and let's make some more assumptions. You haven't swum in 12 to 14 weeks due to the pandemic. Uh, since the, uh, Does the question have any more specifics to it? Or 
that's it that we that's all we have that was okay. a question via instagram so uh that we had okay. earlier in the week so so let's make some assumptions that you haven't been suing for 12 to 14 weeks you do have 40 minutes of access what do i do this is session number one this would be one of the only times that it's okay to do it and as you saw emicate in the three-week build-up plan it's okay to swim 30 minutes to 40 minutes uh non-stop in your first session just yeah not a hard stroke back and forth just sort of a let me let me try to remember how to swim again and that's yeah. okay to do for your first session and even perhaps even uh, your second session and then you would start building in some very soft easy intervals but 40 minutes at this time for first two or three weeks is plenty adequate for swimming at the moment yeah so you do some graduated sessions and you have that three-week plan that you can uh, direct that person to that we put out for yes. you guys yes for sure arthur on facebook wants to know if you do have access to open water twice a week, thereabouts, uh, and 45 minutes a time, what's best to do? And uh, we're, assuming, and we're assuming that people have a basic triathlon level of swimming. Well, first thing, make sure it's safe. So, and what's the criteria for that? You either need a buddy, a buddy system to, to, to participate or swim with, and or if you're solo, you should get one of those... Um, uh, safety devices where it goes around your waist and it's those buoys that are inflated. So if something does happen and stop them, at least hold on to that inflatable device. So safety is always number one. So let's make some assumptions. Again, if you've been swimming for several weeks, you're reasonably fit, you've got 45 minutes in, let's do a very, very basic open water workout. That's easy to remember 15 minutes in of uh, easy swimming. That's called that the warm up, not a hard stroke. And when you do anything easy, the frequency of sighting should be about every 10th stroke. And that might be too much for some folks who are not used to sighting very much, but that should be your, your low bar every 10th mm -hmm. stroke. Uh, and, a ten, and a stroke is a single arm. This would be one, two, three, four, eight, nine, ten 10 sight. Uh, and then let's hit a little, a simple main set where you could do something like a hundred arm strokes at 70% effort, 30 arm strokes recovery. And you can do that a dozen times through. In fact, you can do that, let's make it to, to take 45 minutes, you probably wanna do that 16 times through. 100 strokes followed by 30 strokes, 16 repetitions. But let's have a little bit of nuance to it so that it doesn't, doesn't appear so boring. 100 strokes at 70% effort, 30 strokes easy. 100 strokes at 75% uh, effort, 30 strokes easy. 100 strokes at 80% effort, 30 easy. 100 strokes at 85% effort, 30 strokes easy. Bracket that, that's four rounds, and do that four times through, that's 16, and that'll get you through close to 45 minutes. And of course, when you're doing those 100 strokes at the varying effort outputs, you're gonna need a higher frequency of sighting, an hour mm -hmm. number every sixth stroke. Perfect. So there's a simple set, just two pieces to it, warm up and then a segment. Yep. Okay, and then talking more generally about training, uh, what, one of the questions we had from earlier in the week was what percentage of your training schedule, if you, uh, this is a 70.3 athlete, mm -hmm. uh, what percentage of your training schedule should you devote to swimming? Uh, and how important is swimming when it's such a short part of the race? Now, I mean, it depends who you ask. That, that could be a controversial question. I know what, I know what Jerry's going to say, but... Um, well, you're the professional athlete and you had a swim background and, um, and we, we could even uh, imitate have a reasonable intellectual debate over is swimming even valuable for you who had a, a, an elite swim background 
And as you could tell, it became very valuable for you because swimming has a um, has incredible benefit and carryover uh, to the other two sports. So yes, it is valuable, although it only is in a 70.3, it's approximately uh, 10% of the time of your event, but it doesn't mean you should only train 10% of the, of your allocated weekly times. So in other words, if you had 10 hours a week to train, it doesn't mean you should just spend one hour of swimming. Right. Cause so, I think when people are first coming into the sport, I think that's sometimes the mistake or the belief that they hold, you know, if 10% of my race is swimming, I'll dedicate 10% of my training week to it. And if you have sensible, yeah. And if you have 10 hours and maybe that's not, you know, a lot of people don't even have 10 hours uh, if you're balancing, you know, like full-time work and family life, et cetera. If you have eight hours a week, you know, spending less than an hour uh, a week in the pool or whatever, seems probably not enough. Uh, but. Well, it, 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 if you don't have much of a swim background, you haven't been training and you're spending most of your time biking and riding, which would appear to be sensible uh, because 90% of it is riding and running the tax on swimming would be too high. So you would uh, finish the swim segment of your 70.3 completely taxed and fatigued and not be able to perform uh, at your optimal output for your bike and run. So it is sensible to have some form of swim training regime. But Arthur, since he asked the question specifically, it's hard to know because it also depends on your, um, how many hours a week you have your ability of swim relative to the other two sports. So there are other factors that come into it, but here's a, let's go with a sort of a standard basic rule of thumb. I think it's fine to spend up to 25% of your time doing your swim training. There's a massive carryover from uh, swim aerobic benefits to your running. For sure. Yeah. And I can remember some of the biggest winters swimming with you, with you guys at tower 26, huge swim volume all through the winter months led to some of my fastest running through the, into the, into the following season. So, uh, yeah, I know it's, it's very easy to maybe take a short sighted view of it as swimming is a short part of the a small part of the race. I'll spend less time doing it. Um, and it's very easy to kind of go down that rabbit hole, but, um, but like you say, there are added benefits. Um, sorry, go on. And, and running is quite corrosive or can be, especially if you, if you do it on a year round basis and with high frequency. So we need to be able to manage run training carefully. And this is a wonderful way to do it and to keep fresh legs and have tremendous aerobic benefits. Yeah. Which leads us quite nicely to a next question, which is, is it possible to become a competitive triathlon swimmer if you started swimming as an adult? Absolutely. I mean, it's um, one of the wonderful things about the sport of triathlon is uh, that there, yes, there are some athletes who come into it with swim backgrounds like you did, EK, but many don't. So it's uh, you're starting off almost at an even keel with many of the athletes that come in. So with um, a good training program, a terrific coach, a feedback system, adequate training volume, the right prescription, all the things that we talked about in, in our book um, and uh, accountability. Yes, absolutely. And, and we have sev several athletes, that we've many athletes, but two or three in particular come to my mind that started off as 36 to 40 minute half Ironman athletes that can swim 25 to 28 minutes for a half Ironman. Started off at 140 for an Ironman and could swim 55 minutes for an Ironman. No swim background whatsoever. So absolutely. 
Yeah, I mean, somebody who comes to mind now, I mean, obviously, he it's not like he learned to swim as an adult, but somebody just comes to mind who we were just talking about before we before we came on the show was Cameron Worth, who has swum with you for, for some years now. And obviously, he is a cyclist, a previously a rower, but he's somebody who's improved his swimming a lot. And talk, talk to us a little bit about Cam and, and how he's, his improvement. Oh, he, well, one, you're also starting off with a, an athlete with super high DNA that's won an Olympian in, in rowing, then became a professional cyclist, and then became a professional athlete. So a professional triathlete, sorry. So an athlete like that is probably going to have a much higher aptitude to, being, to becoming very good. But when he started swimming, he was in that, I, I want to say in that 105 range for an Ironman, then quickly went to one hour, which is very fast. For, and that's without a wetsuit by the way, mm-hmm. for an Ironman swim, did that at Kona. And then within a year to a year and a half, he was swimming close to 50 minutes. Um, but we're dealing with a guy who up here believes he can do anything and goes out and delivers it with training frequency and, uh, and intensity. I mean, he mm-hmm. is one badass dude. <laughs> he is, yeah. Oh, so we have a lot of questions about breathing, and I know that's something you love talking about. Uh, so we'll dive into those. Uh, number one, how often should I take breaths? Every third is fine for me, but every other keeps me fresher. Jerry. So, yeah, wonderful question. And probably one of the most um, overlooked things in, in swimming is breathing regarding its frequency. It's very comfortable for most folks without a swing background to breathe less frequently. Meaning in this case, uh, this example, every third stroke that's given or even every fourth and I've seen even every sixth stroke and all of those are the circle with the slash through it. That is a no, no. It's always every two strokes and two strokes means uh, if you're a left sided breather, left arm, right arm, that's two left arm, right arm, breathe two. So single arm is a single stroke. So two strokes and breathe. There's no benefit to holding your breath in any sport. We don't do it in running. We don't do it in riding. Why should we do it in swimming? It's that simple. Don't complicate it. Yeah, that's a very interesting thought, actually, is that the thought of riding your bike or running and holding your breath seems completely foreign. You know, it seems completely crazy, in fact. But it's, a th- it's something that a lot of people do in the water is hold their breath and then breathe and gasp. And obviously then hips sink and head overturns, all the rest of it. So. so there's a whole bunch of fear involved with swimming if you don't have a swimming background, anxiety and so on. So it's typically easy just to take a big breath, hold it, under, hold it underwater, swim a bunch of strokes quickly. And but what happens then is you've consumed your, your, your mass amount of oxygen, all of it at that point. You've gone six or eight strokes at a high output. And then you turn to breathe and you need to capture a big, big breath at that time. And that's, we then create the lingering breather because you turn out there and you sit out there and you got to get in that big gulp of air and then all sorts of technical things start happening to your swim stroke when you do that. So keep it every two strokes, simplify it, learn to do it that way. If you haven't, it'll take a little adaptation, but then it'll be just as regular as it is right now sitting, having a conversation where you don't think about it anymore. Yeah. So you just hinted, you just touched on that then, but maybe go into a little bit more detail about what happens down in the rest of your body when you are holding your head out. Cause I don't know whether a lot of people are so super familiar with that or maybe cognizant of it, but when you are holding out for a lingering breath, which is easy to do if you're breathing every six strokes, what's happening with the rest of your body? Wonderful question. So, so a number of things could, can happen, but the most common thing that happens, there are two things actually, but the most common one is you turn to breathe. You must capture a big breath of air because you've held your breath for such a long time. So we sit out to the side. The person lingers longer, meaning you take a longer time sitting out 
there to capture the air. So the body starts sinking slightly. So therefore, in this example, if you're a right-sided breather, means the left arm is out front, and the person then tends to press down with their left hand because as you're sitting out there longer, the body starts to sink. All of this, by the way, is taking place in a quarter second or a half of a second. But the body starts sinking in the water, instincts come in, I need to push my hand down to create lift. So the person pushes their hand down, creates lift, then their legs sink. So there's a chain effect of problems that occur from a lingering breather. Also, the second thing that's uh, quite common is that the person's head moves off of their spine line, meaning their head tilts off to the side to capture that breath also. And once you tilt the head off the spine line, the spine line meaning that straight body line, then the things happen. The body gets into misalignment. The body turns into sometimes an arc or it becomes uh, it's either convex or concave and um, creates a whole bunch of misalignment problems in the body. So little simple things uh, that would originate from uh, less frequent oxygen can create a number of dominoes that create issues down the line. So mm -hmm. we never treat the symptom. We never treat the symptoms. You treat the cause. If you told somebody, "Hey, you're pressing your hand down. Don't do that any longer," well, they can't fix that if they're a lingering breather. You have to fix the breathing, and then the hand problem goes away. So you treat the cause. The symptoms go away. For sure. Bilateral breathing, is it worth the effort for most age groupers to learn? And do you have any tips for those who find it difficult to breathe to their weak side? I think it's a wonderful tool to have. Think of it as another tool in your arsenal, right? And the more tools you have, the greater the opportunity is to overcome any particular type of situation. Most of us are right-handed or left-handed or, or prefer to breathe on our right side or our left side, whatever it may be. So that's your comfort side. And uh, But once you get into open water, if you have wind chop, wave chop, uh, too many competitors, a, a lot of um, turmoil, um, that's the word I'm looking for, it, you know, turbulence, I'm sorry, on, on, that, uh, on your comfortable side, you might want to be able to turn to the other side to breathe. So you may as well have a, a, a reasonable amount of aptitude, right? A skill set to be able to do that. Do you have to utilize it? Not if conditions are wonderful. You don't have to. Here's a guy, like, and you are too. We swam a lot as kids. And I could say without hesitation, probably 99.9% .9 of races, I breathe on one side only. But if the opportunity lended itself, we had the skill to be able to turn to the other side. And it's also worth considering, I think, or worth, also, also worth adding that uh, from an overuse point of view, you know, if you're somebody who is swimming a fair amount of Ks or yards each week and you're constantly breathing to your right side, you start to get some asymmetries in your body that you definitely don't want to have down the road, you know, to, to build up and accumulate. So I know that from, from, uh, from my own experience. So, <laughs> right. And, and so that's the case for, for athletes such as yourself at a, a very super high level, but for most triathletes that are swimming one hour, two hours a week at the most, it's, it's not as um, critical as it would have been for you or for, for swimmers, but it's definitely a skill you want to acquire. Yeah. And, and so there's a part two to that question. Yeah. What was that? There was. Um, do you have any tips for those who find it difficult to breathe to their weaker side? In fact, and another question, we've had a similar question as well. How can people learn to breathe on both sides? So tips, I guess, but people are looking for tips on breathing to their, to their weaker side. Like for me, right, I still, I always breathe to my right side. I still, as I'm, you know, it, trying to breathe to my left side is still not pleasant, but I, I can do it if I have to, but. So how do we come better at anything? 
we become, you know, it's the, it's practice, right? And then we eventually start becoming familiar with it and then there's adaptation. So frequency is always the answer, uh, high frequency. So how do I do it? I can give you a, my little nugget for what made breathing on the other side, similar to you at EK, I'm a right-sided breather. And, and I do not enjoy breathing to my left side. Simply don't, it feels awkward just like it does to you. So for me, in every single warm-up and every single workout, I always breathe every third stroke, which, by the way, goes against what we talked about earlier, breathing every two strokes only. But in warm-ups, it's fine to do that. Just in your main swim sets or in races, you always want to breathe every two strokes. So dedicate the first several minutes of your session to breathing uh, on both sides. And you can do that simply by breathing. If you're right-sided, breathe every right side in one length and then every left side in the other length or alternate breathing like we were just saying, every third stroke. But you want to start building it in. It's going to be highly uncomfortable because mm -hmm. it's like learning to write with your left hand. Adaptation occurs with frequency. You just have to do it a lot. There is no, uh, no golden nugget. There is no magic pill. There is no – it's time. You just have to do it. Yeah, you definitely have to practice it. And I think maybe another good tip would be getting somebody to video you doing it because you can, you can then see, I think sometimes when you see yourself swimming, it looks so much different to when, you know, what, you, what you think you're doing. So, you know, I know when I see video of me swimming, my left arm can, if, if I'm not concentrating, my left arm comes, can come, come across my center point, which obviously then causes other problems. But so perhaps, you know, if, if somebody's looking to improve their left-sided breathing or their right-sided breathing, so, so there's always going to be some amount of awkwardness if you are very, very comfortable on one side, because typically, let's just sort of take 30 seconds to go through this. If you're a right-sided breather, as you demonstrated that you were, okay, the body, when you're swimming, you start off flat, and then you're always going to turn up to the right side to capture your breath. Then you come down flat, and you may turn a little bit to the other side. So, but the rotation of the body typically always rotates more to the breathing side, more mm -hmm. to the breathing side. So now you're asking the body, you've been familiar only with going to one side to breathe and a little bit of a turn to the other side. Now we're asking, let's turn to that other side to take a breath. So the whole chain, I'm sorry guys, excuse me. Apologize <laughs> about that. Sorry, that was, Jerry's uh, not available right now. <laughs> I have, that was my parents calling me from, uh, from Trinidad, I'm sorry. Um, so you're just not familiar rolling up onto that other side. So everything feels awkward, even turning your shoulders that way, turning the hips the other way. So it's a whole awkward, situation so you just have to practice 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 a question from earlier in the week if my current technique is solid how can i improve my speed so that's with just a prescription that's a pres having a good training prescription so find yourself a coach that's uh, qualified uh, who knows uh, good swimming protocols that the demands for the triathlete technically and um and it's always interesting all of us could improve our mechanics. So although that was the foundation of the question, everyone can improve on the technical side of it. And especially for triathlon swimming, because there are very few people that are highly skilled with the, on the technical aptitude of triathlon swimming, because you have breathing mechanics, sighting, all those types of, all those pieces that come into it. But after that, once that's nailed down, it's all about the right training protocol. Mm -hmm. And so uh, give us maybe a, uh, one of your favorite, one of your go-to sessions for, a speed workout well because of you know and a lot of these things are highly debatable because of uh, 
coaches have their own ideas of what training needs to look like for the triathlete. But from my perspective, we've, and we went over this in the book, Emma Kate, that we only have a limited time budget to be able mm -hmm. to, to allocate to swimming. So if I'm only going to swim twice a week, as an example, you don't have the luxury of saying this session, in my opinion, if you want to optimize performance, you don't have the luxury of saying, well, this session is just going to be an endurance session and this session is a speed session. To me, that doesn't optimize performance uh, over time. You're going to have to build in all of those variables into each of those two sessions. So an example of a set that we've done many times, and I think we went over it in the book, is that we would have sets that have different efforts to it. Well, actually, let's go back to the open water set from, from earlier in the episode. Uh, mm -hmm. We did 100 strokes at 70%, then 100 strokes at 75%, 180%, 185% with 30 strokes easy in between. There's an example of dedicating different output levels within the same session, right? And then having the recovery. So you had easy percent effort, then you have a 70%, a 75%, an 80%, and an 85%. And the only reason I didn't go to 90 or 95 or 100% in the prior example is because most folks are now restarting swimming. There's no point in trying to swim it above those effort levels. But once you're well seasoned and, and in great shape, then we start putting effort levels higher. So you do need to integrate various output levels almost in every session, especially if you're only swimming one or two times a week. Yeah, so some of that kind of work, that work at 90% or 100% effort, um, especially over the, one of Jerry's signature sets, I think, is the 60, 60 25s. That was one of my, would I call it, would I call it my favorite? <laughs> Definitely. But, uh, <laughs> we don't yeah. do those frequently, but we did build in a lot of 25s. I think we only did that set once or twice a season, but we built in lots of 25s into many of our workouts because we needed that, you know, that high, high octane, and also the beginning of every race starts fast. So you may as well have adaptation built into your training sessions, because if you went into a race and you didn't put that into your training sessions and you went fast in the beginning, you're going to run into some, uh, some problems. Yeah. We've got a fun question from Facebook. Who is the, your favorite, who's your favorite athlete you've ever trained? You know, I, I love those sort of questions. Uh, and they're, they're impossible to answer because Everyone has such unique personalities and, and Emma Kate, for instance, you were fun to coach. You were always engaging and, 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 and always had a great attitude. So I, I don't, it's, those are like the, the, the diff, Cam Worf as an example is fun to coach. I mean, he really is because yes. he is just a, he, he, he's just such an incredible personality in general that he's never down for the most part. So you don't find that in, in many people. We all have our down days. He's always up and ready to go. Whatever you ask him, he's okay, I can do that. Oh, I'm going to try to do it. So those are fun personalities. So Cam Worf would be, would be one of them, but everyone on great days are, you know, I love coaching. So you show up and you're ready to go. Let's do it. You're, you're the, you're the fun one at, at that moment. Yeah. I'm sure people like Meredith Kessler, Jesse Thomas, some of those guys, some of those people that you coached, uh, back in their day, uh, or you sure. still work with, you still coaching Meredith. Right. And, uh, so the, and you've had hundreds of pro triathletes through your tower 26 squad at you know, various points. So. Sure. And you know, pro athletes, no different than an age group athlete from the perspective of their, they may have a higher aptitude or they're just more skilled at their craft, but they're still personalities like the rest of us where they have great days a, a, a few great days, a few shitty days, and a whole bunch of ordinary days, right? Yes. And so 
it's just it's up to the coach to help manage that to, to some extent and and bring the best out of them you know especially on the on the lower days so i don't okay. think in those terms yeah yes no i know probably an unfair question Okay, so we're going to pause. We're about halfway through the show. So we're going to pause to give away five. We have five copies of the book to give away. Uh, and we are picking people at random, people who signed up to the show beforehand. Uh, so the first winner is Mihak Khanna. Uh, that, so there'll, there'll be books being mailed out. So uh, we will get in touch with these people via Facebook and uh, mail out these books later this week. Uh, but yeah, so Jerry's, well, I should say Jerry and my book is, uh, what's the publishing date? July 21st. So you, it's available for pre-order at the moment uh, via velopress.com and uh, various other websites. Um, but sorry, go on, Jerry. What were you going to say? I, I, th I think you're underplaying your role here. You had such a significant role in this book, in writing this book. And 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 to the audience, you guys, the reason that Velo Press picked Emma Kate to be the author was because one, she had a journalistic background. Two, you swam for your entire life or most of your life since a little kid. Three, you became a professional triathlete. And four, you swam under our, on my tutelage for several years. So you knew our programming. You knew the, the system that we follow. Uh, you've made great improvements under it. And, and put all, weave all those pieces together. You were the perfect person to write the book. Plus, no one would want me writing a book. It would come out in <laughs> Trinidadian English. Yeah, so we have we have one of our editors picking winners at random from the screen from our, our Facebook screen. Um, so our second winner is Stephanie Levins Triska. My apologies for pronunciation here. And our third winner is Kavish Gandar. Again, my my apologies if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. Um, I think but your we, editor is just giving you tough names. These are hard names yes, to pronounce. Yes, I think she is. Um, but we will be in contact with these people to get their mailing addresses and get their books to them uh, later this week. Uh, okay, do we have any more? Any more? Number four and number five? We'll come back to those. Okay. Uh, so next question, Jerry. I'm a strong swimmer, yet some days my shoulders move like a caterpillar. I have the endurance, but my arms say not today. What do I do on those days? That's a wonderful expression, a caterpillar. Never heard yeah. that for swimming. I like it though. Uh, so I, I would want to make some assumptions here. Um, a person that feels like a caterpillar, caterpillars just look like these soft little mushy creatures. So I don't know what a caterpillar means like. It means stiffness or just um, uh, softness. Cause, but Let's let's use a, a word that means we just feel uncomfortable and, and um, it's challenging on that day. Shoulders are perhaps fatigue. I've found there, you have to you always have to come back to cause. What's the cause of this? And if we can find the cause, then we can treat it, uh, treat the cause, so the symptoms can perhaps go away. So feeling sort of awkward or caterpillar-like perhaps mm -hmm. can come on the heels of trying to swim after hard run sessions. Uh, for many athletes. There's one athlete that I coached that actually enjoyed, loved swimming after he, he uh, ran, which is uh, Trevor Wartell. And in fact, he just, he performed really well in swimming, but most don't. And uh, swimming feels awkward. It feels stiff. You swim slower and so forth and so on. So the timing of where you put your swim relative to especially run workouts, it does apply to riding workouts also, but run workouts more. If it's too close, uh, meaning within, um, if you had a hard run workout within 24 hours, it could be a problem. So spacing out those workouts a little bit longer, 
And of course, if you can't find a, a cause, then we have to look at, um, uh, are you swimming first thing in the morning immediately with no warm-up? So you tend to be a little bit stiffer. You then have to allow for much longer warm-up. But typically, we can overcome that feeling with careful warm-up and progressive warm-up. And as educators, you know, we typically have a progression before we get to the main set. We'd swim for 10 minutes or so pretty easy. Then we'd get into part two warm-up where that could be 15 to 20 minutes long. And that's a progression of heart rate. And then we finally hit the main set, which is after 30 minutes of swimming. And even in that main set, we would start off easier and progress effort again. So a very graduated, careful warm-up will help reduce caterpillar-like symptoms. How's that? Yes, 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 yes. Um, <laughs> one of the questions we had was, why am I so slow now? And I think that was in reference to obviously having had 12 plus weeks off. And that's obviously something I'm sure you're going to hear at Tower 26 in the coming weeks. What do you tell, what do you tell people? So it all this morning, at, uh, all the folks that showed up to swim, sort of the common thing. Well, it's, you know, it's obviously common sense tells us that, you know, you haven't done something for 16 weeks where, uh, and especially when it's, it's swimming, where you, we're not creatures uh, in the water, we're land creatures. So we've, we have no adaptations that are occurring in those 16 weeks, uh, mm -hmm. unless you're trying to swim in your bathtub or something. Uh, which which not, I did see some people doing on, I saw on that, social so, media. Yes. Um, but make some assumptions that you haven't been doing much of that, then you're completely in the foreign medium and it takes just a while to become familiar again. And I remember adaptation takes about 10 sessions, approximately three weeks if you're doing something three or four times a week. So allow for that reasonable period of time. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. So we have our two remaining winners, uh, Nuno Correa and uh, the fifth winner is Shannon Reed. So there you go. Uh, congrats, you people. You will be getting books in the mail later this week. You finally got an easy name on the last one. Yeah, that was the only one of the five. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now we've got uh, an interesting one, swimming pools. And why do some feel slower than others? How do you know if it's the pool or if it's you? So typically experienced swimmers can uh, uh, tell which pools are slower or faster pretty easily. And then some others are able to have that feeling. And generally, if a pool is shallower or it's an older pool, where that, meaning it, it does not have a, a runoff gutter system, uh, where, where the pool, where the water just runs into the wall and bounces off. More modern pools has a, have a, a, the, the water slips over the edges into a, a gutter system and goes through the filtration. So pools that are, that are shallow and or that do not have these gutter systems tend to have much greater turbulence. And once you have much greater turbulence, that's gonna affect performance. So that's one reason. And then also some pools just really have better lane lines than others. And lane lines, uh, the quality of the lane line will also reduce turbulence. So that's another one. And, um, and then there's some days uh, that we are just slower. <laughs> And it has nothing to do days. with the pool, right, the caterpillar days. <laughs> yeah, so th that's definitely true. And that's a debate that some of the editors uh, and I were having earlier in the week. Why do we, why do we feel slower? And uh, I think, well, one of the answers that I put forward was when you first come to, uh, certainly swimming at elevation, and one of the pools that uh, is open here at the moment has, has that higher deck, uh, so you have the turbulence from the wall, has pretty poor lane lines. And, yes. uh, and then when you're swimming at 5,500 feet above sea level, having come from sea level, then 
swimming of swimming course. is the one that's most impacted so that combined with 12 weeks out of the water is going to lead to some not awesome swimming but it's not uh, going to feel good no, I don't know. So uh, just a reminder to everybody at home to keep submitting your questions. Don't be shy. Jerry's here for the hour. So we want to keep tapping into his brains and picking his brains on all things swimming. Um, so yeah, any, any more questions from anybody at home? We're, it's very quiet today. We are, we are light on questions, Jerry. Oh, well then let's, um, let's create some questions from the perspective of some of the things that folks can perhaps be um be expecting how about this season that um, yeah. this is a very disrupted season right and as much as I think Ironman uh, have tried to have races the reality is the odds of having races this season are probably low to, mm -hmm. to zero so what do we do especially with swimming since the, the, this uh, we're talking about the swimming segment of it so I think if your facilities have reopened and and or you have open water opportunity uh, you, you want to um, you want to continue to integrate swimming into your training uh, protocols if you can. And of course, if you can do it a couple of times a week, that's uh, super helpful. Mm -hmm. um, if you only have open water opportunity, then again, safety comes first. So you would want uh, a body system and or utilizing uh, the safety buoy. And I think it would be helpful to hire a, a coach if you don't have the experience. So they can guide you through how to get the greatest return out of doing an open water session. Cause most folks don't know, as you know, this demicade, what to do once you get into open water. The, the most mm -hmm. common thing that everybody does is, okay, I've got 30 minutes. I'll just swim 30 minutes. So you could swim 15 minutes out and 15 minutes back. And there's your 30 minute swim of no varying effort levels. Right. So having someone to a professional to guide you through the, the right training protocols would be super helpful. So that's a, something to definitely continue to do throughout the season. And, and for those where if swimming is your weakness, for sure you want to continue to do this during this, uh, during this phase. And now that programs uh, or facilities are getting re reopened, guys, I'm sorry about that. That was a call coming in again. That facilities are um, reopening, therefore master's teams are starting to uh, regroup and, and be involved again. So join one, join your local program, uh, check in. It would be helpful to check in to see if the coach has uh, some triathlon experience because that would make the, the sessions more specifically de dedicated to your needs, usually, and um, and learn from them. So, yeah, because that's a, that's something that we talked about in the book and touched upon a number a number of chapters is the difference between obviously training for swimming in triathlon versus training for swimming, you know, uh, masters swimming or you know pool pool swimming is very different, and there's those nuances there that. Uh, that you're the master of. What well, I, I, and we went over that in, in the book, as you recall, because many of us tend to think it's, it's not somebody's, most people's areas of expertise, and you think, well, it's just swimming. So it, it shouldn't matter what I, what I do. Well, it doesn't, if you don't care about performance, optimizing your performance. And, and, and that doesn't mean you're trying to win your age group or become a professional athlete. If you just want to be the best that you can possibly be, then you got to make sure you're following the right um, the right technical aspects of, of swimming because the technical aspects vary depending on what segment of swimming you're in. So if you're in, in competitive swimming and you're swimming the 100-meter freestyle or the 100-yard freestyle, the mechanics that are needed for that event are very different than the demands of the mechanics that are needed for a 1.5K in an Olympic distance triathlon. And definitely a half Ironman on Ironman. And the training protocols would be completely different. 
uh, think of it in terms of running. If you're just going to run a, uh, an, an 100 meter freestyle and swimming at the elite level is 50 seconds. It's much faster, but it's used that it's under a minute. So if you're training for an event, a running event that's only 50 seconds long, you'll be training a whole lot differently than if you're training to run a half marathon, as an example, right? Or, right. or a marathon, very, very different protocols. So getting into a swim program where most of them are, are training for the U.S. Masters National Championships, where the 85% of events are two minutes and shorter, those training protocols are going to be different than what the triathlete needs for the most right. part. So it's, it's nuanced. Yes, for sure. Uh, so a good question from Nate via Facebook. He wants to know, would you suggest high cadence or low cadence? So it doesn't have to be binary, Nate. It's a, it's a terrific question. Um, think about it even in terms of cycling or running. Uh, you do in your, if you do bike trainer workouts, so you'll, you'll have low cadence uh, uh, segments built into your session. You'll have high cadence, high, high cadence segments. So we want to have it as a, a tool, two tools. Higher cadence has value and so does lower cadence. They're both tied in uh, or there's a correlation with those to do with power, obviously, and, and, and efficiency, but we want to be able to have both. Now, we also want to really make sure that we have the opportunity to have higher cadence, which is not natural because higher cadence is more effective in open water for sure, right. especially if you have turbulent conditions. Right, right, right. Yeah, and, and what are the sort of strokes per minute that you're looking at when uh, we're talking about cadence? Because I know that's something that a lot of people kind of dial into. Yeah. So strokes per minute simply means the number of arm strokes, this being one stroke, two stroke, how many strokes are you taking within 60 seconds? And the average rate or so of my coaching career and sort of clocking athletes would be sort of in the mid 50s, 55, 56, 60 in the upper end for the average triathlete, let's say. So that's how, so one, almost one stroke per second. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's, is comfortable, but if you only trained at 60 stroke, 50 to 60 strokes a minute, you cannot go into a race and race at 70 strokes a minute. Uh, you will for about two minutes at the most, and then the, mass, the massive fatigue sets in because you don't have any training depth at, at that cadence rate. So performance is a function of cadence rate multiplied by efficiency. It's the same for riding. You need power and you need cadence. So in swimming, you need the same. We need efficiency. Uh, which has a, a portion of it to do with power, and then we also need cadence. So we need both of those, a marriage of both of them together. So graduating and having higher cadence rates built into your training sessions, and there's a little tool called a tempo trainer, a little small device you can put into your swim cap. And you can start training with those. In fact, MK, we, we use those uh, with you, right? Yes, we did. <laughs> yeah, you were one of those athletes that t tended to have a slightly lower cadence. Mm -hmm. And we need a little higher cadence for open water. So in your case, we got your cadence rate, which was generally around 68 or so from what I remember. And we started adding on 5% uh, increments every three weeks. And we got, took it to 72 and then we went up to 75. And I think we may have gotten close to 80, 78, I believe, was, uh, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And then we'd have those, sh like the shorter workouts that we, or shorter sets, we'd try and do like holding 90 strokes a minute, which I found just 90. Yep, so hard. 90 to 100 yeah. strokes a minute on, on, yeah. on the 25s. Yep. Yep. So it's, it's another skill set. It's another tool to have in your arsenal. Yeah. Oh, this is a good question that you're like, Jerry. So, because Jerry's background is open water and he, you've been swimming in open water since you were nine, nine years old, right? So sure. uh, you're, you're the master of the ocean. But how do you determine when to swim over or under a wave during an ocean swim? 
at the waves at the surf at the uh, at the beach level or once you get up beyond the surf level um well i guess either it doesn't doesn't specify but uh yeah let's let's assume both let's answer both okay so at the beginning um it depends on the size of the wave so at the beginning if you're now entering into the water and there's there's surf it would depend on the size of the wave and the depth of the uh of the ocean floor where oh, how deep you are in the water at that time. So if you're able to stand up, you might be able to just sort of jump off, um, use the bottom of the ocean or the bottom of the flooring to push off and sort of jump over the wave if it's a smaller wave. If the wave is not small, then you obviously are gonna to have to go beneath it. You scouch down, you dive under and let the wave go by. And if it's massive surf, for sure, you're going beneath the wave and, and in big surf, you're going beneath and as deep down as you can go even to the point of grabbing your fingers into the sand uh, because with massive power, you're just getting sucked back to the beach. That was one of the things I, that was probably one of the first uh, things I learned from one of your first ocean swims was the diving, diving through under a wave and then holding on, I would be holding on like this to the ocean, the bed of the ocean and sure. waiting, waiting for it to pass. Um, so, and that's, and that's in big, big surf and, um, and it's necessary in, 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 in large surf. It's difficult to do with a wetsuit on because the wetsuit's, you know, corking you up. Right. Uh, as far as the second part, maybe in, in bigger waves in the, in, um, in the open swim segment, there's sort of a rhythm to most waves once you're, you know, in the ocean, there's never, well, I've never swam in super big waves where you've seen some of those movies where you have 10, 20 foot waves in open water and, and, and yeah, you wouldn't yeah. even have a race directors wouldn't have a race like conditions like that. But if you have two to three foot swells, they're not really waves. There would be swells. There's a rhythm to the swell and you sort of learn how to roll with the roll with, find the rhythm and roll with it. If you can, um, you crest at the top and you skate down the, yeah, but as you said before, that comes from practice and that comes from yes. familiarity of being in the ocean. That's something, you know, you've been in the water, you've been in the ocean for decades. I think that's something that comes from that kind of exp experience and expertise. Yeah, and, and, and learn to be playful. Try to be a kid again and think, you know, I, I just sort of want to play around in, in these waves and sort of ride, take advantage of them and, and ride them down. So you find the crest of it. And then as you're going down, that's when you can lengthen your stroke more and just get more glide going. Yes. That, that's a good point actually is learning. Yeah. Learning the art of enjoying it and learning to respect the ocean too, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's an important one, by the way, Emma Kate, because there are days um, and here's a guy who has pretty good experience of you, as you've said, they have been days that I have gone to the ocean to, do a workout and would not execute the workout. And I have been to races that I've chosen not to perform, not to race, even though the race uh, was, you're allowed to participate. I, I, I didn't enter the race. Yep, yep. Oh, a good follow-up question to that. When exiting the ocean with a large wave coming behind you, do you turn around back to the ocean to go under or keep heading forward towards the shore? Great question. <laughs> Simple answer, depending on, depends on your skill level and uh and how brave you are so skill level uh those who have uh, good body surfing skills will obviously um typically try to ride the wave if they if they're positioned correctly if they're not positioned cor correctly and um some will still try to ride the wave in the best you can because you're even going to get further forward even if you were tumbled in the wave you will usually end up further forward than if you weren't tumbled in the wave if um if you don't have a high skill set you're apprehensive 
massive and the surf is definitely high, you want to turn around, look at that wave and go beneath it. In other words, reverse your thinking of, I want to get to shore, think I want to get back out. And as we talked about in the opening segment of this open water piece, dive beneath the wave, go down, let it, let it go by over you. Yes, for sure. I think that, that question probably answers itself. I think for some people, if you have that skill set, then you're going to be able to make it to shore. If you don't, you're probably going to automatically be like, no, thanks. Yeah. And, and here's the, here's the guide uh, as to what's the decision. What's your fear level. And if your fear level is high, you're nervous, then turn around and get beneath the wave. Yeah. If you have a playful side to your nature and you have a reasonable comfort level and you're not fearful, give it a go. Another good ocean question for you. Any suggestions for breathing in the ocean when waves are choppy and hitting your sides? Again, always every two strokes. And this is where the skill set we talked about earlier from one of the prior questions of learning to breathe on both sides becomes helpful. So you might have a wind chop coming into your face on your comfortable side. You're going to have to learn to breathe, uh, utilize the skill of the other side. So absolutely. Yeah. But still every two strokes. Mary Jo wants to know, she started swimming five years ago and she's had a few coaches. She knows what she's supposed to do, but she finds it hard. How does the average person get the stroke mechanics down to do it correctly? Hey, Mary Jo, thanks for the question. Um, you need to find a coach. It's that simple. So uh, hopefully a local coach in your area that can uh, help you would be ideal. If not, you'd find some um, some remote coach that can have uh, offers what you're looking for. As an example, we have a program coaching.tower26.com where we have a swim program online uh, that's run by me and, and our coaching staff and, and there are videos and there's an audio section to it and videos demonstrating what to do. And then there's a feedback loop with our coaches and so on. So something like that where you can have a feedback system and you're being shown what to do. You go execute it. You, and if you can get yourself even videotaped and then you get reviewed, that's the type of thing you're looking for. If you don't have somebody at your location to help you. Yeah. Okay. So just a reminder, folks, we have five minutes left. So any more questions, fire them, fire them into just uh, into us now and we'll get Jerry to answer them. But uh, this is a fun one for you, Jerry. John wants to know how much do you recommend kicking? So it's interesting. It's a wonderful question, John. And again, it's one of those individual things. EK, you remember Jennifer Tetrick, uh, mm -hmm. former pro triathlete, uh, very good cyclist, great runner, started uh, with no swim back. And Jen is one of those few, very, very few triathletes with no swim background that actually had a propulsive kick, meaning she actually gained propulsion from her kick. So we allowed her to continue to have her kick. We tamed it slightly, but we allowed her to continue to, to kick. But for triathlon, there's really low value in having much kicking. Most triathletes who do not have a swim background do not get much propulsion from their kick. In fact, it's a super high cost. Heart rate goes up super high and the return on that output is close to zero, if not negative, because many athletes that don't have good kicking skills, um, their, their legs create damage to other parts of their swim stroke. So for most triathletes, low, low kicking, Soft mm -hmm. on the legs, let the wetsuit float your feet up, get all your power from here up. And so in a, in a nutshell, there is l very little value for the triathlete to have a, a very propulsive kick. Yes, and kind of related question, what would you recommend for a swimmer who has sinking legs? A wonderful wetsuit. 
<laughs> so for race day, obviously, uh, you, like anything else, sinking legs is a function of body tautness and not learning how to have the connection between your upper body and your lower body. So the, the legs just tend to sink down. So there's a hinge, there's a break at the waist. And we have to teach the person how to be able to hold their legs up at the surface. So that's a skill that has to be learned. Do some people have more sinking legs than others? Yes, but there's not that much of a difference, actually. It's the awareness of learning how to have your body taut in the water so your feet stay close to the surface. And that's a learned skill. And just briefly, how would you go about learning that? Well, we have to learn how to have uh, body tautness, which we do through a, a number of uh, skills. It's in our book, by the way, that we, I think we devoted almost an entire chapter to that, where we actually do kicking, but not for the purpose of becoming a good kicker from that question from John or Nate, but of learning how to hold your legs close to the surface because the general tendency is to almost be piped. So we do kicking to teach some body tautness. And then we also have some, draw, uh, some land uh, activities, skills, that are learned and then we move them to the water, but you do need a snorkel. It'd be super helpful. Yes. Yeah, so the snorkel buoy band, uh, that's, that's usually there to help create that taut position through the water. Yeah. And then yeah. we do a fair amount of vertical kicking because that way you really learn how to hold your body like a pencil. Right. And that is a very good way. I mean, obviously you need to have a deep end. You have to be in a pool with over six feet of water, but that is a very good way to, to kind of learn that, that tautness. That you, yeah. that you see lacking people who have sinking legs. But uh, okay, Jerry, I think we're coming up on time. So we want to thank you very much for joining us today. Always informative, always a pleasure. And uh, there'll be those five people will be in touch with you uh, this week and getting your books in the mail. But uh, yeah, good luck to you, Jerry, for the rest of the season and to all the Tower 26 crew. And uh, thank you for joining us. And it's always great seeing you. I miss seeing you. You lived in Los Angeles for several years. We just don't get to see you as much anymore. So even though it's remote, awesome to see you. Yeah. Thanks, Jerry. Take care. Thank you, Coach Jerry, for joining us. And thank you all for listening. Stay tuned to our social channels for news and updates on our next live show so that you can get your questions answered. Okay, we'll be back in a month. See you then. <laughs>